it feel good in here today? Amen. Amen. It's a great honor to be here and to be a part of this incredible meeting. And I feel that today or last night was an incredible start to this magnificent meeting and got the sense that we're not satisfied with just the status quo, but there's a hunger. Does anybody have a hunger today for the power and presence of God to be manifest among us? Oh, hallelujah. Amen. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11, verse number 15. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Let me just say this, OH. It's good to be with some Ohio people today. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And I want to preach on this subject today, the greatest opportunity on earth. You may be seated. People from all generations and all walks of life stand at the wall praying. The young the old, men, women, from all cultures, all backgrounds, all languages, the rich, the poor, the insignificant and even the most powerful of leaders in the world stand and have stood at this wall. They stand, they kneel, they sit, and they rock, and they sway as they petition and cry out to God to hear them. They offer up prayers for peace, prayers for hope, prayers for the return of a sacred place of worship that has been lost to the perils of hatred and the horrors of war. This place is found in the country of Israel in the city of Jerusalem and is known as the Wailing Wall. It is the remains of the western wall of the once prominent and immaculate temple that Herod built near the time of Christ. Today, what is left of this once elaborate complex is just scraps and crumbs, a mere remnant. And as the prophet Amos described like an animal torn to shreds, this temple has only one thing left, and that is 
a piece of an ear. This glorious place that once was the pride of every Jew during the time of Jesus was reduced to rubble by the Roman leader Titus around 70 A.D. So now what remains is just a pile of rubble and a small section of a cracked and battered wall that keeps those who offer prayers here on the outside of a once prodigious temple complex that once hosted the very holiest of holies and a place that during the reign of King Solomon, the presence of God would be seen and felt. This vast complex that once existed and of which was visited in our text by Jesus sits on top and sat on top of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It covered an area of around 35 acres. The, out, the outer walls of the temple grounds were between 1,000 and 1,300 feet. And when a person entered those temple grounds, they came first into the court of the Gentiles. This area was open to all people who wanted to worship God. Jews and Gentiles alike were allowed into this court of Gentiles, into this area to pray and to meditate. Jesus described this section of the temple in Luke chapter 18 when he tells the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. He describes the tax collector as standing afar off who would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven and beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Had you moved further into the temple grounds, you would have come to a low wall. And beyond that low wall was the court of women. And on this wall, there were signs that warned Gentiles to stay out of this courtyard. Only the Jewish men and Jewish women could enter here. Beyond that was the court of the Israelites. Jewish women could enter this court only if they were bringing a sacrifice to give to the priest. However, Jewish men were allowed there at any time. And beyond that was the court of the priest. This was where the priest worked and ministered. And beyond the court of the priest was the temple itself with the holy place and the holy of holies. All of the events we read about and read about in our text today took place in the court of the Gentiles. During the time of Passover each year, the population of Jerusalem would swell by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. People came to Jerusalem from all over the world, and they came specifically to worship at this great temple. In those days, part of the Jewish worship involved the sacrifice of animals. And these animals had to meet certain standards. Before they could be used in the sacrifice, they had to be approved by the priest. Apparently, the high priest, Caiaphas, would allow vendors to come and sell clean animals in the outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles at this temple complex. And because there were animals being sold in the temple, the pilgrims who came to town would not have to bring their own animals. 
nor would they take a chance that the animals that they brought would be judged unclean by the priest. So it was a very convenient way for pilgrims to worship God. It is interesting to note that in our text that Mark mentioned those who sold doves. Doves were the sacrifice of the poor. Those who could not afford a sheep or a goat or a bull could offer these inexpensive birds. Doves were what Mary, the mother of Jesus, brought as her sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Other items used in the temple worship were also sold in the court of the Gentiles. Items like wine and oil and flour and salt that had been pronounced clean, they would be sold in this area, and it was very convenient for the worshipers. There was also the money changers who provided a valuable service to the temple worshipers. Every Jewish male was required to pay a temple tax called the shekel of the sanctuary. And this tax had to be paid in Jewish money. Other currencies were not accepted. So these money changers seemed necessary because the pilgrims from around the world would be in possession of various currencies that would not be accepted in the temple. And so it was very convenient. In our text, Mark mentions in verse 16 that they would bring vessels through the temple. This temple courtyard and the court of the Gentiles provided a quick path between the eastern part of the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Many people who were on business in the city would take the shortcut through the court of the Gentiles instead of walking around the temple complex. And it was very convenient. To most, the things that were taking place at the temple were necessary and fine. They were certainly very convenient. Most people had no problem with the way the system was set up and the way that things worked. But when Jesus walks into that temple area and he began to walk through the court of the Gentiles on that day, he could not take it any longer. He could hear the bleeding of the sheep and the cry of the dove. He saw the oxen working the cud in their mouth. He heard the rattle of the money being swept off the tables and into the bags. He breathed in the foul odors of the animal droppings. He watched as shrewd money changers cheated worshipers one after another. He took in all the haggling and all the cheating and all the irreverence. He walked into that littered courtyard and something welled up inside of him. This was not what the temple was designed for. This was a place where God came and wanted to commune with his people. 
This was not a place that was just a passing ritual or a pit stop on the calendar so people could get on with life to him, to Jesus. They had made what was intended to be a place of pure connection to God into a place of market and trade. And Jesus walks into the temple and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves, a place full of thieves, a place that leaves those coming lacking what they came with and what they had come for. So we have to ask the question, if there were thieves, then what was stolen? And Jesus simply states that the thieves had stolen prayer. said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Who were these thieves? I suppose today that the thief was not just a person. It wasn't just some guy running through the temple complex pickpocketing the out-of-town visitors. Nor was it just one or two priests that took advantage of the worshipers. But Jesus described it as a den. It was a gathering place of thieves. I think it was an atmosphere. I think the den of thieves was a culture. And I submit that it was a culture of convenience. This den of thieves, this den of convenience, and this culture of convenience had taken something, not by force, but it had taken something by what it produced. The culture of convenience had produced an atmosphere in which the worship offered was not their own. The priests were partly to blame. The priests tried to make it like a drive-through sacrifice. You don't need to bring anything. Everything you need will be here when you come. Just pay a small fee and you can have the same connection to God everyone else has. The priests during the time of Jesus had followed the similar suit of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, in that they had taken in robbing those who had come to worship. Caiaphas, the high priest during Jesus' day, and the other priests and cohorts had found a way to make huge profits off the worshipers who had come to the temple. Some historians estimate that the high priest and his henchmen were actually charging as much as 10 times the normal worth of a sacrifice to these unsuspecting travelers. It's like when you and I go to Disney World or go to some amusement park. They know that they got you at the park and that most likely you're not going to leave the park to go get some 
food or to get some water back at the car. And so they jack up the prices of the water. Has anybody ever paid $10 for a water just because you were thirsty? That's what these priests were doing. They knew that these travelers and these worshipers were stuck. Don't worry with bringing your sacrifice with you to the temple. We have something that you can buy when you get here. But one would also have to consider the fact that the priests were not the only ones to blame. The pilgrims and the worshipers were also culpable. The sacrifice was the responsibility of the pilgrims to bring to worship. But it was much easier for them to just show up without having to drag that animal sacrifice a hundred miles and then get there and to have it uh, pronounced unclean. It was much easier to just buy it when you get there and know that it's already been given clearance to be a sacrifice. The pilgrims, too, had sold out their devotion to the ploy of convenience. God help this generation, in my generation, to never make worship something that's merely convenient. God, help us not to be so enamored with convenience that when we come to church, the church provides the sacrifice. It can be so easy to just pull it up and walk in and sit down where the church provides the lyrics, the church provides the melody, the church provides the scripture and the words and the praise instructions and the poems and the rhythm to the music and the prayers and everything that we need to worship God is already here when we get here. There is nothing about convenience that is even remotely related to sacrifice nor will it produce what sacrifice will produce. Help our generation that we not tolerate a lack of praise because of convenience. Help our generation not to tolerate a lack of giving because of our convenience. Help our generation not to tolerate a lack of fasting for the sake of convenience. Help our generation that we not tolerate a lack of holiness for the sake of convenience. And help our generation that we not tolerate a lack of prayer because of our need for convenience there is nothing about convenience that is even remotely related to sacrifice i have a great burden today and i'm preaching not at this generation i'm preaching for this generation but i wonder how much of our prayerlessness comes from an attitude that says we need not pray so much anymore because our music is great. And thank God for our worship teams, but sometimes I feel we think a sacrifice of praise is when I sing a song. Go ahead. Worship should be something we bring in this place with us. 
Worship is not the song on the screen or the words on the screen. Worship isn't the song that's being sung through my vocal cords. Worship isn't even clapping my hands. Worship isn't the fact that I lifted my hands in the air. But Hebrews, the writer said, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit. That means it comes down from inside our heart, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Our worship today didn't come because you sang some songs you saw on a screen. I can go to a ball game and they sing songs in here all the time. But what made it praise today is that it came from your heart. You got to know why you're praising them. You got to know why you're thankful. I'm so thankful for my wife, Kristen. It was 18 years ago that we started dating. We started dating right here in Indianapolis at the Youth Congress in 1999. I'm just trying to give some of you guys hope today. But also, let me give you a piece of advice. Most of your relationships, if you're dating, will fail after you've come. I'm just kidding. I hope they don't. But it would be like me every time I wanted to have a conversation with Kristen. That I pull out a Hallmark card and read it. Hallmark cards are great, and they have their place. But if all your worship and all your prayer consists of is a Sunday morning singing a few songs and bowing your head at the end, then you've missed the purpose of prayer and the power of prayer. It's not a sacrifice if I don't bring it. Why don't we pray more? I wonder if we have allowed the convenience of a nice life and a nice church to keep us from prayer. We don't need to pray anymore, our church has grown. We don't need to pray anymore, our youth pastor teaches the Bible studies. We don't need to pray anymore, our finances are blessed. We don't need to pray anymore, our needs are being met. We don't need to pray anymore, our sacrifice has given in to convenience. My pastor preaches good. We don't need to pray. Our church does outreach. We don't really need to pray. My family's doing fine. We don't need to pray. The convenient substitutes for prayer will destroy what God has in store for your life. Convenient substitutes for prayer will destroy what God has in store for your life. It will destroy your passion for purity. It will destroy your passion for worship. And it will destroy your passion for the gifts of the Spirit. I believe that God still longs for His church to be a praying church. Yeah. 
I know we've got some adults in here that know how to pray. We've got some amazing pastors and leaders and youth leaders who know how to pray. But I want to challenge this generation. The church still longs for his church. God still longs for his church to be a praying church. Because a praying or a church that doesn't pray is a church that doesn't have power. A church that doesn't pray is a church that doesn't do the will of God at any cost. A person that doesn't pray is a person who lives according to their own logic, their own experiences, and their own values. This generation of Google, Vine, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook must not think that what God wants to do in our life is merely going to happen because you read a tweet about God or you liked an Instagram post from a camp or you gave a praying hands emoji on someone's status needing prayer. You can't update a status your way to a relationship with God. You can't Snapchat a picture of church to gain the power to be used in the gifts of the Spirit. You can't Google search and get a hunger for holiness. You can't Instagram and get a devotion of faithfulness. You can't purchase a, a am on Amazon a passion for souls. You can't find a Pinterest recipe that will alter the world that you live in. Guest preachers can't preach enough messages that will develop the ministry that God wants to work in you. Your pastor won't be able to counsel you enough to cause you to find freedom from temptation. These things will only be attained and nourished by a prevailing and persevering life of prayer. When you pray, things happen. Do I have any pastors, do I have any adults that will help me today and say, when you pray, things happen. Things happen around you. Things happen for you. And things happen to you. Ian e. Bounds said, praying which does not result in pure conduct is a delusion. God still longs for his church to be a praying church. And that's why Jesus would say, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets and in Lucas Oil Stadium that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who is in the secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Don't just repeat words for the sake of repetition, for they think that they would be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever I feel the spirit beckoning, uh, beckoning us I feel the spirit beckoning this generation that we need a generation to rise up and of all things you need to be good at you need to be good at prayer Not praying here in a crowd, not praying just at your church, uh, at the altar call, but finding a secret place, uh, finding a time where you're alone with God. Oh, hallelujah. I feel the passion of God in this room today. And I submit that prayer is the greatest opportunity that we have on this earth. Let me say it again. Prayer is the greatest opportunity that we have on this earth of all the things that you could do, of all the things you could do with your time, with your talent, and with your treasure. I wonder if someone in this place would commit that you're going to be a man and a woman of prayer. It's the greatest opportunity this great big God wants to talk to me. This loving God wants to talk uh, to a sinner like me. He wants to hear what I say and not only what I say but that great big God wants to speak into my life. Uh, he wants to pre bring purpose uh, and power into my life. And it only happens in prayer. How often are our hearts these temples of the Holy Spirit. How often have they become a den of thieves? Sports activities that take the place of our devotion and it robs our prayers. Money used to feed our selfish ambitions and it robs our prayers. Hollywood fills the mind and it robs our prayers. Pride and deceit rule our lives and it robs our prayers. Sideline hobbies and interests replace our spiritual time, and it robs our prayers. Friendships and dating relationships become our obsession, and it robs our prayers. And there must be an emptying out of our spirit to make room for prayer. Some things Jesus said would only take place because of fasting and prayer. And this is a time and this is a generation where we must entirely devote ourselves again to the ministry of prayer, the struggle of intercession. And when I look through the pages of God's word, I see a constant theme of God talking with his people. Starting with Adam and Eve and Noah, Abraham, Moses, the judges, the kings, the prophets, the disciples. God would speak to his people through the opportunity of prayer. That should be reason enough for me to see how important prayer is. If Noah needed to pray, I probably should pray. If Abraham needed to pray, I probably need to pray. 
if Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah needed to pray, then I probably need to pray. Before there was a this is that moment in Acts chapter 2, there was a these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication moment in Acts chapter 1. And after the this is that moment in Acts chapter 2, 16, Acts chapter 2, 4, states that they continued steadfastly in prayers. Acts chapter 3 says now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer. And I, Acts chapter 11, 5, I, Peter, was standing in the city of Joppa praying. In Acts chapter 12, 5, prayer was made without ceasing of the church. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, where many were gathered together praying. Acts chapter 13, verse 3, and when they had fasted and prayed. Acts chapter 16, verse 16, as we went to prayer. If we want a this is that moment, we need a prayer moment. What has gripped my heart the most concerning the legacy of prayer found in the scriptures is when I see Jesus Christ, Jesus began his ministry with prayer. Jesus prayed during the peak of his popularity. Jesus prayed at the conclusion of his ministry when he was in the garden and when he was on the cross. If Jesus needed to pray, why do I think that I don't need to? The only remedy for the emptiness in our lives is for a full restoration of prayer as never before. Can't find enough friends on Facebook. You can't be in enough relationships. You can't find anything in this world. You can't find the right job or the right car that will satisfy the true hunger in your soul outside of prayer. This culture of convenience had produced not only an atmosphere in which the worship offered was not their own, but I believe one of the main reasons Jesus was so angry at what the temple had become was because the culture that came from that insatiable desire for convenience created a devastating environment that rejected the outsider. Let us look back on what the temple was designed to be. It would be Solomon who prayed that dedication prayer of the temple. And he prayed, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the people of the earth may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. 
That's what it was designed for so that the needy could approach God in that place. That the true believer, whether he was a Jew or a Gentile, could come to the temple and pray to the Lord. And God promised to hear those prayers because God said, now my eyes are, are open and my ears attentive unto the prayer that is made in this place. Anyone, including the foreigner, the stranger, the sick, and the lame would be allowed to pray here. But the culture of Jesus' day said, I just want to go through my ritual. Hurry it up. Let's go. I need to purchase my sacrifice. Where can I find it? Get the priest to do his thing. We need to go. We got stuff to do. You see, this culture of convenience was fine for the Jews. It was fine for the religious. It was fine for the church folk. It was fine for those who had a registration to North American Youth Congress. They felt great. They got to be in his presence. They got to enter the presence of God. But this culture of convenience kept the Gentiles, the outsider, the sinners, the drunks, the weed-smoking friends, the promiscuous, the heroin addicts, the meth users, the suicidal. They kept them from finding and experiencing God. And so when Jesus walks into that littered court of the Gentiles, he finds the only place a Gentile could approach God as a marketplace, a place of business, a place of laughing, a place of carnality, a place of gaming, a place of exchanging information. Imagine the noise that must have filled the court of the Gentiles with all the sellers yelling at the buyers, the buyers haggling with the sellers. There is no way a person could pray or much less meditate on the things of God. The Jews had effectively closed the door of the temple to the Gentiles. And this angered Jesus. And it should sadden the church. We're fine in here. We're fine. We've made it into the intercourse. But how many lives do our lives touch that because of our life of convenience and our life of prayerlessness, they are not able to experience the power and the glory of God? We come in contact with them. We rub shoulders with them. But we're no different than everybody else. Our life is so busy with all kinds of other things. Our life is so littered with so many other desires, so many other hobbies and interests. And we brush by them. And all along, the suicidal are standing in the court. They're standing and they're kneeling in the courtyard trying to find God. But everybody's so busy. Everybody's got their thing. They're so walking around just doing their thing. And there sits the outsider looking for 
the power and presence of God. This lost generation needs a church, not just adults, a, a church. A church who will pay the price in prayer and fasting. You and I represent the court of the Gentile. You are the outsider's link to the presence of God. You are their connection to the power of God. You are their window to the glory of God. You are their opportunity to the mercy of God. And when they come in contact with you, they should come in contact with everything that God should be. The reality is that they are going to come in contact with you before they ever step into your church service or your youth service. And if your whole relationship with God is built on the convenience of a Sunday experience, their inter interaction with you will feel like any other marketplace. It will feel like any other place of exchange. It will feel like any other non-believer. What if they could come in contact with you and have a moment with God outside of them ever coming to the house of God? What if they came in contact with you and they could feel the power and presence of God even though they weren't at your youth service? When I get to the end of my life where I'm raptured out of this world, I do not want to be faced with the conclusion that I might have been a man of prayer. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and have done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's a terrifying passage. Because it means that we can have ministry happening in our lives and not know the heart of God. He said, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The reality is that prayer is the only thing you will do that will outlive you. John records in the book of Revelation, he says, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four, 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In Revelation 8, says, Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Your prayers are eternal. Your prayers are eternal. 
every time you utter a word to God, those prayers are put into a bowl. It may feel like a drop in the bucket, but can I tell you, the prayers aren't just uh, sitting there as one drop, uh, but they're combined uh, with the prayers uh, of the saints. Your prayers are eternal. I am so thankful for my three beautiful daughters, Emma, Audrey, and Ava. And I have prayed some prayers for my daughters. I have prayed that God would use them. I pray that God would use their gifts and talents for his glory. I've even prayed that should they get married someday, that God would use their future spouse in a great way. And I absolutely believe that if I die tomorrow, those prayers don't die with me, but they live on. I can spend my time doing a lot of things, but it's my prayers that are going to live beyond me. And here's why I believe that. My father and mother are here today. They are the greatest living heroes of the faith that I know. But my dad was five years old when his father died. His mother told him that when he was a baby, his father would hold him up in the air and pray for him. And even though my dad walked away from God at the age of 19 years old after his brother was killed, those prayers that his father prayed never died. And those prayers hovered over my dad like a rain cloud waiting on the wind to blow. And at 23 years old, the wind blew and those prayers were poured out and my dad found his way back to a merciful God. Your prayers never die. Unfortunately, we most likely never know what is lost in our prayerlessness. Unfortunately, we most likely never know what is lost in our prayerlessness. But someday, we will know what is gained by our prayerfulness. Wow. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Youth Congress, this is an incredible picture of what the body of Christ is like. A diverse collection of people from every walk of life and every culture. It's a beautiful kaleidoscope of the broken, the messed up, the abused, the forsaken and betrayed and labeled disordered and the sinful. But in this room, we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified by the name of our Lord and the Spirit of our God. And today we are gathered together like streams joining together to form a roaring river in this building, a roaring river of praise and worship, desperately hungry for revival. And some of you need to capture this picture in your mind 
or maybe even put it on your dresser or in your bathroom or in your Bible. Because when you are by yourself, alone in your room, you need to remember that your prayers prayed by yourself or with just a few young people in your church basement are entering the atmosphere collectively with my prayers and collectively with the prayers of the saints from across your district and the prayers of the saints across America and prayers from missionary kids and pastor's kids from around the world. Your prayers, while prayed in drops, are poured out in rivers. I tell this generation today, your prayers matter. Your prayers make a difference. This house is a house of prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And my eyes will be open and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. If this generation is going to be known for something, hear me now. If this generation is going to be known for something, let it be known as a generation of prayer. If we're going to see, as Brother Michael Enzi referenced last night, that many possess the power with God that we have seen up until now only a few possess, it will be, be because a generation decided to pray. The next great revival in a city will come through the prevailing power of prayer. It won't come through social media. It won't come through marketing. It won't come through professionalism. It won't come through skill. All of those things support a growing church. But the real revival, the real impact is going to happen when there's prevailing prayer. And it doesn't just have to be the pastor and the pastor's wife. It can be some 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds that shut the door to their room and get down on their knees and cry out to a God who is more than willing to hear our prayers. North American Youth Congress 2017, we are being called to clean out our temples. We are being called to clean out our temple. If like the Jews during Jesus' day, we accept convenient substitutes for prayer, we may find ourselves like the Jews of today praying on the outside of a broken down captured temple and church experience longing for the yesteryear when youth congress filled football stadiums we keep substituting things in our life for prayer 
we're going to look back and say, where is the power of God we used to feel? This generation has to rise up. And of all things, of all things, be a generation of prayer. You don't have to have talent. You don't have to have skill. You don't have to have a last name. You don't have to have a lot of money. All you have to do is be able to call out to a God. Everyone can be a man or woman of prayer. Will you commit to prayer today? Will you commit to prayer today? Will you not just commit to an hour of prayer or a day of prayer, but will you commit to a life of prayer? As I conclude today, I would like you to consider the words of a song as you contemplate this opportunity and what you will do
Anything I put before my God is an idol. Anything I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol. And anything that I give all my love is an idol. I invite you now to talk to the Lord in your own way. Talk to the Lord. 